might it might show in the background, but whatever. Let's just keep going. It, nobody, I don't think anybody cares. We have yeah. the best audio quality of anything except Aram's other shows. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Bullywood PSA in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 307 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. This is Actual Play Season 2, the debrief episode. In this episode, we are debriefing after our playthrough of an adventure inspired by A Deep and Creeping Darkness from the 5e D&D book Candlekeep Mysteries. We'll talk about what we liked, what we changed, what we could do differently, and most important, how did we totally screw up. Programming note, we will be back to our regular episodes with the Gates of Morning recap and Character Creation Forge starting next week. You know, there's nothing quite like playing uh, an impromptu game with someone uh, basically on the air and then having that played back to you so that you can just see all of the things that you really wish you'd done differently. But I don't know, maybe we should kick it off with things we liked. <laughs> sure. So do you have any favorite moments from season two? Uh, yeah, my I think my favorite moment was the dagger of warning moment. Because, you know, an hour before we started recording, I just start going through the list of magic items. And I'm just like trying to like, piece things together and put something that like i don't know makes sense like it seemed like flavorful right uh, dagger warning is not anything that meepo ever uses like he, he but it's a magic dagger so if he needs a magic weapon fine and then it also has that thing where we can all like even though we all trance <laughs> like we can actually just sleep at night and not worry about it right um and so i was like whatever Th this is a flavorful kind of like eberron adventurer's dagger it's fine uh and then to have that moment where it was like we're preparing to just like you know gut somebody like a fish who's walking through that door because we're trespassing and uh and it looks like this is a crime scene and then it turns out to be Skelebro, and like he gets the dagger of warning warning at the same time <laughs> because like we're still cool man <laughs> <laughs> so in that moment did did it not occur to you that maybe it was Skelebro? you you absolutely thought it was like i thought it was an enemy. i had zero yeah, I had zero intuition that that was Skelebro because, like, in my thought, he he'd gone like an hour plus away or something with a group of people. Like, he had an assignment, and I hadn't heard from him, and so I just figured, uh, yeah, no, he's 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 not part of the scene. So I didn't even occur to me. Yeah, like when you said dagger of warning, I mean, okay, so I think the dagger of warning did it, it sort of hits like three points that you want in a situation like this. It is mechanically good. It feels like something that Meepo would pick, right? Like a little kobold out in the world for the first time. You know, what, what do you want? You want a little magic thing that tells you, look out behind you. Right. And it's flavorful, right? There, there are things that we can do with it uh, that aren't just mechanical. And when you said you picked it, I was like, okay, we got to do something with this. And I think it probably wasn't until, I don't know. I mean, that's why I had you like reread very carefully the the description of like exactly what it does yeah so and so what the dagger warning does is it gives you advantage on initiative rolls and then you and your companions within 30 feet of you can't be surprised except when incapacitated by something other than non-magical sleep 
the weapon magically awakens you uh, and your companions within range if any of you are sleeping naturally when combat begins. So so basically, like, it just protects you. But, like, what worked about that was, like, our companion was the one who was surprising us. So he also got the warning that he was about to be surprised with, you know, uh, uh, being pin-cushioned as he walked through a door. And And I had planned that there would be that cat and mouse scenario when Skelebro showed back up to like reunite the party and but it wasn't until like we really sort of like sat with the dagger of warning and you know it had um it already had already come into play with the first mean lock attack you know so we we'd already sort of like demonstrated its, its usefulness so that scenario was already going to happen and i think one thing that works when you sort of give players the reins is you end up with scenarios where it doesn't it doesn't matter how it plays out it'll play out in an interesting way right so we didn't end up having a combat where like the 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 like small party is accidentally stabbing each other right it was a scenario where you almost stabbed each other but actually ended up being a cool moment where you avoided all of that and it sort of like built party cohesion even a little bit more and like gave you a little win, which wasn't something I had originally planned, but it's also fine that it went in the complete opposite direction. You ended up up subverting the combat that I was planning. From a show, like, entertainment perspective, right? Like, it was cool that we talked about adding it to the sheet. We kind of showed it a little bit with the mean locks, but then it actually came back to be pretty meaningful, right? So you had the kind of Chekhov's gun sort of situation, right? Uh, It was also nice not to have to, like, go through another combat right then. Uh, Yeah, especially against myself. (laughs) Uh, all right, anything else? Uh, well, what was your favorite moment? Um, I I really liked the NPCs in this season. Um, and they weren't necessarily ones that were planned to be big. Like, I had a thing planned for the shifters, you know, but we didn't end up going in that direction. Uh, Hank was sort of like a planted seed to see if anything came out of that eventually. The elves were definitely people that I was like prepared to like really characterize but like Lucas was just a bartender until you like really started asking him questions well he was the only one I could trust <laughs> <laughs> he always trust the bartender yeah uh and then and then I had a, I had a ton of fun with Ascarda like yeah she's just a great character to play because like she just has no compunctions yeah I mean I my favorite moment I, I was killing Ascardo, so good job. <laughs> Way to make a truly hateable NPC. Hey, right? That's what you want, you know? Oh, take her take her or leave her? No, no, no. Right. <laughs> Love her or hate her. That's what that's what you should do. Yeah, no, I mean I, I liked her arc of being like completely insufferable at the beginning. And then, you know, obviously like I made a move, she made a move, and then we kind of reached a detente. Uh, and then to to have her eventual betrayal, right? Like I I think that that played out nicely. But uh, I don't know. I were you surprised <laughs> that uh that she died? Because <laughs> mm, I think I mean once once Meepo died, I was sure you were gonna you were gonna do your best to kill her, right? Before that, I was like, oh, I don't. I mean, I don't know. Hank is here now. You seem to respect Hank. Like, well, she wasn't responsible for Meepo's death, though. No, but oh, like she she's was, responsible yeah. for. Oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. She, yeah, she was. Right. She was you like there were the witnesses, but yeah, also yeah. like just she like brought all this about, right? Right. True. Um. Yeah, but before that, I was like, I don't know. Maybe you'll like 
try to end up on Hank's good side and, you know, your, your main focus will be like getting that dragon shard, right? Or whatever. Um, yeah, so I didn't think you'd 100% necessarily kill her uh, till the end. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, well, I mean, this is even better, right? Because that we had already, again, like there had been the Chekhov's Revivify <laughs> placed on the table earlier. Right. And then, you know, one, two deaths. <laughs> exactly. Both within the one minute window. Like, I, I couldn't have planned that better. Right. And then also, like, I, you know, I gave up the dragon shard to do it too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Like, mm-hmm. that's the other part of it that I, uh, like so sometimes like it surprised even me as the player right of just like in that moment there was i had zero interest in in tez like enriching himself right like there was i not even a single thought of not throwing it overboard <laughs> right like it was just pure like you know like gotta get the mission done right gotta avenge my friend so uh it felt like you know i like when those moments happen because it like uh, maybe the audience sees it coming, but as a player, I, I didn't necessarily see it coming. So I didn't necessarily either. It reminds me actually of sort of those pivotal characterization moments, like um, in season one, when Tez kills the hobgoblin who's holding like the goblin kid hostage mm-hmm. and then like runs away and throws up. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we, I think we both knew like you're going to kill the, goblin who's holding some holding a kid hostage right yeah <laughs> yeah uh but then you know to have like the response be i think unexpected and you know unexpected i think for both like i don't think either of us went into that session thinking like oh tez is going to feel bad about killing someone who deserved it you know true yeah definitely not <laughs> <laughs> and i think you know the beginning of the like this the session for this season i don't think either of us was like oh tez is gonna like willingly give up 1500 gold pieces right right well that's the thing so that's what's what's interesting like about season two tez versus season one tez right is like season one tez was literally like broke friendless desperate and just trying to like like basically like fake it till he makes it (laughs) right like he just kept saying i'm a rogue archaeologist and like it was going to be either hit the death of him or it was going to come true. Um, and then he found some companions along the way that helped him make it true. Like season two, he's not nearly as desperate, right? Like he had enough of a payout. Like we've kind of decided that Tez is like perpetually like making ends meet, right? Like he's always pulling jobs and then, you know, having things that he has to cover, right? Expenses to to pay or like, you know, tinkering to do artificer training to go like invest in, you know, so like he's always running right at zero. Like his bank account is always empty, but his friends are thriving. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so like, and that was kind of how we wanted to characterize him. So he's still like scrappy and desperate, but he's not like, he has something to lose as well. Right. And that's sort of like, he has a pretty good life. He's just, is financing that life with some pretty you know, shady activities. And I think like Tez having friends is his redeeming quality, right? Because the the danger of the like lone wolf, laissez-faire, like swashbuckler who like does everything on, on their own and, you know, has no real attachments is, especially in like a party where other people are playing the other characters, it, they can get boring or one note. Mm-hmm. But as soon as Tez has like attachments to other people that he cares about now he has depth that's so 
It, that's actually really interesting because the original inspiration for Tez was Dr. Aphra from the one of the Marvel Star Wars comic series. And like Dr. Aphra is like a sociopathic lone wolf, right? Like her companions at the beginning are murderous droids. And she treats them so poorly that they get their revenge on her. <laughs> like, you know, and like there she has some some redeeming arcs and stuff, but like her her hallmark and and what I had imagined Tez's hallmark was was how smart she is. And then also how cruel she is willing to be, right? Like she always justifies like her evil actions as the pursuit of information or technology or like scientific breakthrough or like a payday, right? And it's not she never really like copes with the consequences and like very early on when playing tez like i started down the path of tez coping with his consequences mm -hmm. and so like that that stopped being the case for him very quickly i felt like um so it kind of, again that's like one of those things where it's like oh well i, I kind of want to play play a character like this and then it turns out i didn't because i made choices that didn't fit that arc right yeah and i think there's a lesson in there for playing pretty much any kind of character is like follow where the character leads you in the story right so like you may have written down on your character sheet who this character is but you know no backstory survives three sessions of play right <laughs> and like that's a good thing that's that's great you find out about your character um and then you know it informs the backstory and now you're like filling in little things right and also, like, Tez did burn down an inn owned by his friend that, you know, innocent people were sleeping in. So, I mean. Exactly. But the, to me, that's like, but then Tez spent the whole time, instead of securing the objective, he spent his time rescuing everybody from the inn. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, sort of selling the ruse, but also rescuing people from the, genuinely rescuing people. None of them died. Right. That we know of. None of them with names anyway. None of them died on camera, yeah. Exactly. All right, so let's dive in a little bit into some of the nitty-gritty of uh, this season. Why don't you talk about your inspiration for this? Because this story, I learned later, came from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to play straight through a, an adventure and with no deviations. Exactly. <laughs> right. No, actually, actually uh, even before I found this adventure... I knew that I wanted to play my version of Le Bête du Gervaudan. Now, okay, so we've been playing together a long time. I know that you like the Napoleonic era. I do. And one thing about someone who like has um who like has a favorite era or genre or whatever is that like, you know, you know you can offer it to them and they will enjoy it and engage with it, but also sometimes they know too much about it. You know, like the the Forgotten Realms lore geek who, mm -hmm. like, you can't run a game for. Yeah, I would be insufferable for somebody running a 40K game for me. <laughs> but I, I didn't know how much or how interested you are in pre-revolutionary France. Zero interest in pre-revolutionary <laughs> France. All, well, that's not true. I find Robespierre to be fascinating, uh, partially because I think he has a very, very cool name. And that's mm -hmm. why I ever looked him up. <laughs> okay. Good to know. Well, yeah. in any case, I'm still not sure if he's a hero in this story or not. By the way, I'm pretty sure he's not. But like Robespierre, really great name. No, he is not. So, Le Bête de Gévaudan, the Beast of Gévaudan, people may have heard of. Um, it's shown up in pop culture. Probably the most famous one is um, Brotherhood of the Wolf, a movie from 2001 from France that started off really good and ended really bad. <clears throat> 
but Monica Bellucci does play a, a, a nun assassin. So I don't know. There's that, I guess. Okay. All right. Well, now you have my attention. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so apparently between 1764 and 1767, as many as 500 French peasants were killed or injured by some sort of beast. People, witnesses alternately describe it as like a wolf, yet not like a wolf, or some sort of like large apex predator with claws and teeth and fangs. Some people describe it as striped, leading people to think maybe it was a, a tiger that got loose somewhere. Some people think it was a previously thought extinct type of like cave hyena or some sort of like long-legged wolf from Italy, uh, or maybe a Tasmanian tiger that someone had captured and, and brought. The good thing about this when like using history is that this is an unsolved mystery. Nobody actually knows what the beast was, which means that even if you knew all about this and were like a scholar of of this particular like happening in like South Central France, uh, no matter what I came up with, it would still be okay. I The fact that it's unsolved really... It's already bothering me, though. You should. <laughs> I want to know what it was. <laughs> um, it was uh, a Warforged Titan, obviously. <sighs> God, this Warforged Titan's got all... <laughs> I'm glad that they were all decommissioned by the time Napoleon got, got his hands on the French military. Yeah, because they can walk right into a Russian winter with no problem. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> things would have been very different. Uh, so a couple things that I seeded in here. Um, if you look at like the Wikipedia page, for example... Um, first, Captain Duhamel of the Claremont Prince Dragoons uh, was sent by Louis XV to, cap to capture or kill the beast, but he was hindered by inept soldiers and then eventually had to uh, reluctantly accept help from bounty hunters. And originally, some people killed the beast. There was a reward offered, and then more people died, and it turns out the beast wasn't actually dead. Although, who knows? Maybe it was cap copycats at that point. Yeah, this sounds like one of those things where, like, there were some there were some legitimate animal attacks, right? And then there were a lot of people seeing an opportunity to even the score. <laughs> I but five hundred is a lot. Five hundred is a lot. I think you're probably right. Like some of these have to have been like, oh, I I lead you out in, into the woods and murder you. Man, the bandits that were behind this really, I mean, really got away with it, huh? Although apparently, I remember there's this story, and I think it actually is true and not apocryphal, of a man-eating tiger in India that was stalking workers. So, you know, there are like many, many people on one place. And it was just one tiger killed hundreds of people. Oh, wait, no. That was a lion that was in Africa. That was a story of the ghost in the darkness. It was based on a true story. Uh, the film had Val Kilmer. It was great. <laughs> I think it was Val Kilmer. I don't even remember. But it was, a, it was an entertaining film. There have been lot, apparently lots of animals all over the world that really like to eat people. And I'm, but yet it's never actually been a shark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 1996, The Ghost, Ghost in the Darkness uh, stars uh, Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas. So, which means it's definitely historically accurate. 51% rated on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> and they should have put in a Warforged Titan. Yeah. It's 88% in Google, though. It's a. All right, so you pointed this out. Every time we introduced a new episode, I moved further and further away from saying that we were running through a particular adventure. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you kept distancing yourself from <laughs> the... Yeah, yeah, so let's let's talk about that because uh, this was not uh, anything from Candlekeep. Uh, I mean, uh, 
it, and it is not the fault of the adventure. A deep and creeping darkness is fine. And like I thought, oh, great, I'll use this as a skeleton and sort of build my, you know, beast plot off of it. Um, so obviously the entire, entire beast plot is invented. The original uh, adventure involves the discovery and killing of the mean lock nest. Um, I used the names of some NPCs, Lucas uh, and his wife, Lorna. Um, I changed the name of the town to one that was easier to pronounce, but essentially basically the same. Some of the set piece locations, like the, the merchant's cart, uh, the mayor's house, um, and the loot, like the ring of swimming and things like that, those I just pulled wholesale over. But other than that, pretty much everything was made up. Uh, for yeah. those who are wondering, the Warforged Titan uh, is, well, pretty much all of the stat blocks that I used are like stat blocks that are in D&D books. I didn't actually change things all that much. Uh, the Warforged Titan is a CR9. Um, I did swap out one of its attacks with the Chimera's Breath Weapon uh, to give it the um, Arcane Fire Cannon. Ascarda was basically, I was originally going to like build Ascarda as a PC and it was just never do that. It's too much, too much work. So she's just a CR nine war priest base with like a few PC additions and some magic items. And then Hank was just straight up a CR four paladin from, um, from Witchlight, mm. And he even comes with once, once per day revivify. So like, I didn't even throw that in. Oh, he was, uh, was he, was he an actual like NPC from an, from the Witchlight adventure? Like uh, a paladin? It's not a bullywug. It's just, uh, I don't know. I think maybe it's an, an elf. Okay. Some, some sort of fae. And they have a sentient longsword. And I just made those Hank's abilities because I didn't want to get into like a talking longsword. Yeah, that would have been even more distracting than yeah. the bullywug. <laughs> <laughs> I like that though. I actually, so that's another one of those things where like, you know, like obviously there's a, a difference between playing for ourselves and playing for a recording for an audience. But like you did a really good job there of like, you know, everyone was looking at Hank weird and Tez was the one person to be nice to, to Hank in town. And even though Tez was a little, little weirded out, he was too polite to be rude. And then, so like, you know, like, and then we didn't really see Hank much, uh, other than like to say, Hey, <laughs> and then move on. And then he comes to the rescue, right? Like, I, I feel like that was one of those things where it was like, again, it was like kind of set up like there's a there's a, an arc to why Hank would be interested. Obviously, duty is important, but also he was doing his duty uh, to the benefit of like the only person who was nice to him in this entire like expedition. So look, I want to talk about that a little bit, actually. Like, let's get to some highlights and what we think actually worked. And I think Hank is sort of emblematic of one thing I enjoyed and I think got pulled off well here is uh, I seeded a lot of different plot hooks and a lot of NPCs just sort of around. And, you know, you can tell, like, in the first episode, like, it takes us a long time to really sort of get anywhere, like, for Tez to physically go places. And part mm -hmm. of that is because we're just meeting people. But yeah. we've, we've talked about this before. Like, one thing that I really like to do is offer up a lot of different details and options for players to engage with if they want to but they absolutely don't have to engage with those things and i put enough things out there that like you're telling me where we're going to go with this adventure right so like they're the shifters 
who whom you didn't end up engaging with. I don't even was, think I talked to them. You didn't, no. Which yeah. was which was fine in the end. There were the elves, which th- they engaged with you a little bit, but you never really like went anywhere together, even though that would have been an option. And then sort of the same thing with Hank, like Kumo Sumera shows up at the end and like delivers you a piece of information that you need to have, but it doesn't come out of nowhere because like, you know, you've, you've had the, um, you've had the short conversations to the point where you've been like, I don't really need them, whatever, you know, but at least they, they exist there. Right. Uh, same with Hank, right? Like he didn't go with you, although that could have been an option, but I just sort of like, you know, you just put a weird thing in front of a player and see how they respond to it. And your response was, you know, not like, Hey, well, initially it was like, Hey, join us. Right. And then you were like, okay, actually, I don't know how helpful you're going to be, but we're cool. You're cool. I guess I'll just see you around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the way the mystery could have fold, could have unfolded in any number of ways with you having any number of different combinations of NPCs giving you the information or um, or going with you, right? Like it, it could have been that like the shifters went with you to or like came to your rescue or like went with you with the SCARTA or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. I'll also say one thing that I think did really work here um, in really grounding the season in Eberron was that you decided a multi-class artificer. Yes. <laughs> uh, again, like following, you know, the, the, that's a bit of an inspiration of Dr. Afra, right? Like rogue archaeologist, like artificer doesn't really fit like the other piece of the archetype, right? Like Indiana Jones isn't, isn't artificer in any sort of way. Um but like I, I, yeah, no, and so it felt like that was like kind of a natural thing, and then, um, you know, given that I wanted Tez to be smart, um, and wanted you know justification for some points in in intelligence, and, and rather you know a headband of intellect, like it, it just felt like a natural fit for Tez, um, especially given like his interest that he had taken and all the lab equipment and things like that, right? And that's sort of like the artificer to me is like the embodiment of treating magic as science, mm-hmm. and so. I felt like his interest in that, it kind of it kind of set that up to make some sense. So, Yeah, we had already established that there was some sort of artifice involved in, like, bringing Skelebro, like, fully back into, like, sapience that, you know, we'll, we'll probably deal with in some sort of flashback at some point. Um, so, like, that groundwork was already laid. And then just I feel like there's so many more levers in Eberron that you can engage with when you have the excuse of, oh, I'm an artificer. <laughs> you know, like people will literally open doors and be like, oh yeah, you're you're here to fix the thing? Okay, great, come on in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Plumber's here. Yeah, so the, the other thing that I really uh, thought worked in this season, um, it, it took a little while for us to get started, but the just stomp around style of investigating that Tez ended up doing of just like, I don't really know where to go, so I'm just going to go, like, knock on a door and see what happens, right? Like, it, because there, there are sort of two types of investigations, right? One of them is that very cerebral where you collect all the evidence and you do all this background research and you never engage with anything, but you have a, you know, a eureka moment where you piece it all together, right? Like, you can have the, like, you know, the kind of Sherlock Holmes sort of thing is, like, maybe the limit of that where, like, you go to places, but you generally just observe and then deduce 
there's like an alternate style of that, which is I think more of like the kind of like noir investigator, right? Of like you have a lead, you go follow your lead, right? And what usually happens to the investigator in that case is they get a broken nose, right? right like, right. you know, you show up at the bar, you start asking questions, and then as you leave, like, the bouncer beats you up, right? And then that tells you that you're onto something, right? And you just keep running into things until eventually you run into the truth, right? And sometimes you have to fight it, and sometimes you have to avoid it, and sometimes you're running for your life, and sometimes you're in over your head. But, like, you're always working towards, like, peeling the onion towards that truth. And as long as people are keep keep trying to hurt you you know you're getting closer right and it strikes me as like in a fantasy setting that makes me think of garrett pi who's a, a character from glenn cook the the mm. author of black company but it's his like you know fantasy investigator and I, I felt like that's what this felt like to me it was like i was like tez was garrett and like you know meepo and, and um and bro were like his morally dotes like his like boon companion right but also like you know, Morley doesn't live with him. Like Morley has his own stuff on the side. Sometimes Morley gets in <laughs> over his head, and and sometimes like you know he's a dark elf, so he's you know got a got a he's an assassin. He's got a set of skills, and you know sometimes those skills get him into trouble too. And like I, I just felt like that's what we were doing, right? Like we were like. There was nothing particularly clever about this. It was like when we find the information we'll need, we'll recognize it. But like, let's just start going and kicking over cans until something happens. Uh, and that more or less is what what Tez did, and it was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's the the style of detective work where, okay, yes, I got shot, but I that that was really just a distraction for me to get the glass with the fingerprint on it, right? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm I'm glad that you ended up enjoying it because I. I wasn't really sure how like Tez and how like you would engage with an investigation, like mystery adventure. Um, but it did feel like there were at least enough skills, especially between like Skelebro and Meepo where you could muddle your way through it, you know? And I think like when you're setting up an investigation and placing clues in, in different places, like, like you said, there's kind of two ways to do it. There, there is the like, um, the breadcrumb method where, you know, you place one thing in one place and once they find that, then they know the next place to go to and the next place, the scavenger hunt approach, right? Right. But that is something that is so hard to predict. And if the chain is broken at any point, then the entire thing falls apart. So I find the best thing to do is like put all the clues in all the places. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and maybe, maybe like you need clue A before clue B makes sense, before clue make, clue C makes sense, right? So clue A is in every place that you go. <laughs> right. Or some version of clue A, like uh, some different clues that all lead to the same piece of information really is what it is, are all in the place that you go. And then wherever you go next, we'll have the piece of information from B. And, and then if you end up going to the other place, that's fine. You can find something that then corroborates information A. You know, it, it's a different clue or whatever, but all that does is just ladder up to like the, the slow pyramid of leading you toward the end, which is it's a Warforged Titan. And like all the evidence, no matter where you are, who you talk to, eventually points to it's a Warforged Titan. It is very hard while in the moment playing to make those kind of like logical leaps, right? Because mm -hmm. like I'm not a trained investigator. That isn't the type of deduction that I try to do all day. Uh to do it as a performance is even harder, right? Yeah. Like to do that in real time. And so like, I, I liked that I had the ability to just go, 
hit something and see mm-hmm. what hits back, you know? Um, right. So it was helpful. Like, you know, e- even though I was like kind of nervous to go break into the, cause this is a town, right? Like to go break into even like an abandoned shop or whatever. Right. But like, I got information that I did out of there. I didn't rob the place. That's character growth. Um, <laughs> you know, and like, like, so that sort of stuff, like, Oh, well, this is interesting. Let me go poke around in here and see what's up. Right. Like that sort of stuff was just helpful to like, to kind of keep things moving when I had no real direction. Um, so yeah, I liked it. I I think it worked for me after like kind of the slow start and getting the lay of the land, and um, I think we kind of had to feel each other out in terms of how this investigation was going to work as well uh, in terms of a performance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, let's talk about some of those misses we alluded to at the beginning, huh? Yeah. Oh, well, I will say so with you sort of like trudging around town, going to different places. It was very hard for me to plan for where Kez was headed, and I think we did a good job of covering that up in the edit (laughs) or Uh uh, we mostly recorded this in like um, one session chunks because of babies. So like rather than what we did previously, which was like four hours and it gets split into four episodes, it was like we record once and then we break and then I've got a week to be like, all right, what happens next? Right. (laughs) Which like I highly recommend if you like actually want to pull this off, although like, you know, the timing for real life is not, you know, great usually. Um, but there were definitely times where, like, you sent Scalabro off into the woods, and I was like, uh? <laughs> oh, you're going to stay in town. All right, let's shift the clues to the town. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, it was really more like shift the order of the clues, right? So, like, right. instead of the tier one clues being in the woods, tier one clues needed to move to the town, and tier two clues moved to the woods. Right. Um, this is a mechanical conversation, but I feel like we overcorrected by bringing in the party actions. Yeah, so I think, yeah, I agree. I think the spirit of the feedback on that was in like a dungeon crawl setting where combat is the primary way that we interface with the environment. Like it didn't, it didn't feel enough like Tez forward. Uh, I think in this scenario where combat was pretty limited, all things considered, um, it felt like we probably should have just played D and D. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So I think, like, yeah, I think we just kind of overcorrected. I think, I think we changed the adventure arc or like the archetype of the adventure as well as the rules we were using, and one or the other would have been fine, but probably not both. Yeah, I I agree. Like, I think you ended up spending the party actions, just taking turns. Yeah, to have Meepo and Scalabro do exactly what they would normally do with their action. Exactly, and that was just because of the way that the like the fights were structured it just it just made more sense that way Mm -hmm. i will say and i think there's probably just a different solve for this like one we're playing 5e D&D, partially because like that's what's popular these days and you know potentially it draws in new listeners but like it's not a narrative system by any means like there aren't really narrative tools in the mechanics of the game we added narrative tools in with the party actions that wasn't necessarily the intention but if you think about sort of the emotional climax of the season, it's, you know, the Warforged Titan crits. Does it crit Tez and probably kill him? Or does it crit Meepo and probably kill him? And that's a decision that you had to make because we had the party actions. And if we didn't, you wouldn't have had a choice. It would have been whoever I had randomly said, they attack you and whoops, here's a 20. Right. But I do feel like that's probably a solve that can be done with just narrative tools, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, I think the only reason it works or worked at all, honestly, is that I cared as much about Meepo and Skelebro as I did about Tez, and so I weren't I I wasn't willing to treat them as like a blade of armor, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know. Whereas, like, if I had a handful of hirelings, like I would have said, "Yeah, sure." Hire, hireling number four like bites the dust sucks to be him <laughs> perhaps this is character growth for shane who isn't worried about sharing the spotlight with meepo and scalabro uh no <laughs> they still can't have potions exactly um mean locks are a bad monster mean locks are but, a really bad monster huh don't use mean locks Mean locks are dumb and bad, and yeah. I'm sorry if I know the person who made that, but it's a dumb and bad monster. You should not give CR2 monsters a save or suck versus paralysis with a fear aura. That's incredibly dumb. For like a whole, it lasts a whole minute. I mean, sure, you get extra saves, but it lasts a whole freaking minute. You see, it's like, CR2? It's CR2, you're dead. Oh, At level oh, six, you're dead so, in a minute. Like, so, they have, so they have 31 hit points, right? So it's either you fail the DC 12 save versus paralysis and you die. Or you succeed, and then the mean lock probably dies. You know, so it it's it, it's a it's a glass cannon monster, and like there are six of them at a time in this adventure, and I just don't really understand how like a an appropriately leveled party makes it through without a bunch of luck. Well, I I think an appropriate level party makes it through because enough people make the save because you know you have proficiency in wisdom saves or whatever. Like someone most likely someone um, right that but can like, deal okay. with that but like we didn't have the action economy for it and then also like didn't have the saving throws for it but one bad like one unlucky round and it's a tpk yeah i mean for sure it's like even if the mean locks work as intended that makes it boring right exactly <laughs> because so, the players do nothing the, in defense of mean locks though like the the concept of like a fae that is manifested by like grief and sorrow is really interesting to me. Super cool, right? The idea that like a tragedy or like a like a great wrong happened here, and now it's become a mean lock nest because they were drawn to that. Like that's that's like that's the type of fae stuff that I like, right? Like that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that's a cool like story hook for a monster. I just think. The mechanics of this monster are agony. Yeah. I mean, I'll also say the lore includes psychic and physical torture, which is not something you notice at first glance or if you're just scanning for stat blocks for a monster. Uh, and then, you know, if you're like sort of playing by the book, suddenly you, you're reading the lore in mid-session. You're like, uh, oh, well, they'll tie you up and then they, whoa, they what? Whoa. Uh, okay. Well, we didn't have a conversation about this in our lines and veils, so I'm either going to skip. It, it, like it just it pulls it in, in when it, where it doesn't need to be there. That's uh that's good to know that I wasn't the only one who accidentally waterboarded somebody in this adventure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the fact that I was at times trying to hew too closely to the way the adventure was paced out in the pre-written adventure. We ended up in situations where like pacing was a little slow. Like I think locations in town could have been consolidated. Like in in the adventure, there's the blacksmith's shop, and then there's the mayor's house. You could have gotten all of that information in just one place with like one fight. You know? I, that's yeah, that's true. But like 
and I know that's a very slow burn and I, I'd be interested to hear like what, what listeners think about that. But like, I actually thought that was really impactful. The, like the tour through like the broken town, right? Like I think that changed as a player, my perception. And, and so by extension, probably Tez's perception of like the situation here and how bad things are and like how desperate the people that are still here are right. Like to me that like that cast Lucas in a different light, mm. like everyone's leaving. Right. Like, I, I don't know that I go burn down his in one. I intended to invite him anyway, like to leave. So, you know, like burning down his in was kind of just impetus to do that. But like, I don't know that I do that if this is a thriving place and he has a like a happy, you know, if they're just like otherwise like happy go lucky victims of this situation. Like, mm. no, it was destitute and decrepit and terrible. And like, you know, the town had, had fallen apart. And like, I thought that was a really good representation of that. So I didn't hate it, but I also wasn't a listener. So, you know, it, I could see how that might drag for others, but I actually really enjoyed it. I mean, add us and let us know. I think then, I think what that tells me is th- this time we tried to be like, oh, we're going to finish this in four episodes. You know, it's going to be one month and then a debrief and it ended up being, you know, six in a debrief. But if you look back, all of these episodes are like an hour 10 an hour 20 right. you know with us being like like trying to cram it in every single time and i think i won't like i won't do that again it'll just be like it's going to take as long as it takes it, if he dies he dies <laughs> <laughs> like we're going to get to an ending after to like something happens after 55 minutes and like right you know we're not going to try to like cram in a, a a quick combat or whatever right yeah and end up recording for two and a half hours to condense it down to, you know, 55 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Astute listeners who are paying attention to their uh, monster manuals will probably notice that I did not play the Warforged Titan particularly well. I tended to, like, forget some abilities because, like, you know, I mixed it up a little bit in order to, like, add the Chimera. And then, I don't know, at one point I was like, oh, these are both recharge abilities. Okay, I should make sure not to use them, like, both every round, but... Do I adjust the damage somewhere else on the fly to account for it? Like, yeah, just sort of ended up being a little, like, wonky because, you know, I don't know. I don't, like, practice run with monsters before I run them, so. Right. That's the core D&D experience is remembering immediately after a fight what you should have done in that fight. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I should have just murdered them. Right. Uh, all right. So what would we do differently if we could run this adventure again? I would just totally leave out the mean locks altogether. Like. I feel like we didn't really have time for red herrings and I would have loved to have that time back to like sit more with NPCs or or have other NPCs come and engage you, you know? I I would have changed the stat block of the mean lock. I would not have left them out. I actually like that. I thought that brought I think that helped bring me in, right? Like that seemed uh-huh. like the introduction to the mystery. And and I was confused for uh for a while to be honest, but like I didn't feel like that was a red herring as much as it was like the breadcrumb that led me along the like the fact that there was something else, right? Like the I don't know. Like I, I guess it was a red herring, but like it, it it gave some impact to the like the tragedy site, I guess, the in the like factory building. So mm, that's interesting. I guess if I think about it, if I were playing this not on an actual play, rather not for an audience, I would have changed the mean lock stat block to be something not terrible. Mm-hmm. But I kind of wanted to have the conversation about how mean locks are terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is why also there was only really the one mean lock fight. And then the next one was basically, you know how to fight them and got the jump on them. Right. Yeah. Because right? I, like, I was not going to send 
like the adventure says, six mean locks in a tunnel at you. That was no, that was definitely like a fear of God moment, though. Like the first fight, <laughs> it was like, I, I mean, this is a, this is another core DD experience, right? It's like fights are three rounds. If they unload all of their abilities on you in three rounds, like you as a player don't really get to think about how easy they are to kill after that, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Because like the fight's either over or you're dead. And it's like, it's just, yeah. So it's like, it's one of those things where it's so hard to communicate threat level in D&D because you only get to see their most powerful abilities because they're so short. It reminds me of uh, one session of Gates of Morning where you were fighting two Inspired and they had this temporal strike ability that did, I think, six D10 damage and then sent you forward in time one round. But all you saw was two of them connect with punches, do a ton of damage, and then two party members disappear, perhaps never to be seen or heard from again. Right, and, exactly. And I think at that point, the entire party was like, uh, we leave. Like, right. We're, we're getting out of here. And then I was, well, whereas like, I'm no, looking no, no, at the No, 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 but wait, block. they can only do that once. They can only do right. it once. Don't worry. Right. It's only it. one time. That's their whole thing. And it's like, yeah, no, I'm out of here. I'm not like, please. Right, right. You extrapolate to like, well, if that happens every round. <laughs> right, exactly. Or like even remotely close to that. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's yeah. a, it's a D&D problem. Which circles us back to how mean locks are so bad because they can do it every round. Yeah, There's actually nothing I, in the stat block that says that if you're already paralyzed, you don't like renew the paralysis or like stack another one on top of it that you also need to save against. Right. You also don't get immune to it for 24 hours if you pass. I think the probably the, the biggest change I would have made, and I think it already would have been made had we been playing in person, is that when the decision came down to does Hank revivify Meepo or Ascarda? And I know that, like, you're hoping it's Meepo. Um, and I had basically decided that it came down to what amounts to a fortune roll. You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, I didn't want to, like, make the decision about, like, who is Hank, right? Because it's just all in my head, me making it up, whatever. Um, but I would have, if we'd been in a table, it would have occurred to me to be like, well, obviously, we're going to roll this in the open. So, like, nobody thinks that, like, I just picked a thing. But also, you're going to roll it because it's a fortune roll, you know? Uh, so what I should have done is like, you know, the audience obviously can't see, but, you know, we have Discord in the background and, you know, sometimes you drop rolls in there or whatever. I would have been like, you know, give me, give me a D6, one, two, three, this happens, four, five, six, this happens and and we'll see, right? So they, like the weight of it sits with you. There's a meta language to D&D as well that's like, you know, you offered to let me try to persuade him and I basically said no. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) which is basically like, I mean, what I was saying was more or less like daring you to kill Meepo, right? Like, (laughs) like it was kind of like that was kind of like testing his plot armor, right? Because in part, like if I leave it up to a role like that I'm making, then that implies that like if I fail this role, Meepo dies, right? I'm giving you an opportunity, like I'm inviting you to use plot armor, right? You mm-hmm. decided not to and rolled die, and that, that that's fine too, right? And had I known that, maybe I would have taken things into my own hands where I had a, uh, you know, a plus six bonus. But like, you know, like what I was trying to do was negotiate my way out of a problem by just kind of inviting plot armor. And you didn't take it, so good <laughs> for you. But I still got what I wanted, so good for me. <laughs> Look at that. Everybody wins. And that's really what we're going for here. Exactly. And then I think the last thing, and is this isn't so much like this particular season. Um, it's actually some things I've been thinking about after the last season as well, is like to be more 
Well, I think I'm I'm always mindful of like trying to make games that I run representative of like diverse people and viewpoints. But when you run a published adventure or a series of published adventures, if you are just using the stock NPCs, you are almost never going to end up with like a diverse story. Um, and like, it's actually a thing that I didn't mention in the last debrief. Like two of the things I would definitely change in Sunless Citadel are, um, it only mentions an NPC's hair twice. And once is to say that the troll has like ropey, gross black hair. And to say that Sharwin, the like damsel in distress has blonde hair. And like, I just cut both of those references when I was mentioning like the troll and Sharwin because I was like, I, I don't care. Like, it's not important that, hey, everyone, Sharwin's white, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, that's very 2000, you know? Um, but, but in this, like, I was like, it's great that the mayor's queer, but also she dies immediately. You know, and like that's true, she doesn't even show up, right? Like, right, she's, like that's that's she's her just fate. Just dead off you, camera, yeah. Yeah, you just well, yeah, and eventually you kill her mean lock form, right? So like she gets right. a fate worse than death, you know. And I think that that's sort of an issue. When I remember, like in the 1980s, growing up as like a little Asian kid, I would be annoyed with if there was like an Asian villain, right? But like that's because that was sort of tropey and like this whole like Ming the Merciless kind of thing. These days, if I see an Asian villain, it's fine typically. Because there are enough, there's enough like representation on screen, right? So I feel like one of the solves here is just to like put enough representation everywhere, mm -hmm. right? Where it's not like it stands out to you that the only queer character is dead and her family scattered, right? Yeah, fair. Now I I I'm not like placing that on the author of this module because again, this is like a tiny Candlekeep Mysteries module where like this is actually I think the only romantic coupling in. Like, that's even mentioned in the entire thing, right? And they're like, I, I will make them clear, queer, you know? There's Lucas's wife. Uh, oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, she's also fridge. She's, so, you know. she's, yes, she's dead. <laughs> Yikes. I actually considered, like, do I, do I like gender bend Lucas? And, and I was like, I'm reading, like, I'm reading this in real time. And I was like, I don't know that I'm going to be able to, like, remember names and swap back and forth or whatever. So I just ended up not doing it. I, I mean, I'm curious how if I would have done the same thing to Lady Lucas's inn. Oh, if you would have burned it down? Yeah, probably not. Mm, interesting. <laughs> I mean, I probably still would have tried to recruit her to the party, but I don't know that I would have tried to, you know, burn down her livelihood and gaslight her. <laughs> <laughs> and tell her I did this for your own good. Right, exactly. Yeah, I'm giving yeah, you an opportunity uh -huh. to join me. Like, <laughs> I don't know. That just hits a little different. <laughs> Yep. Yep. Very true. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's something that we uh, should and are keeping in mind when like, look, you you are playing the main character. And I think I would have been uncomfortable long term if you'd been like, I'm going to play a female character. Right. Because I just feel like there's. Yeah. Like we, we have both played female characters in our home group. I don't know that I necessarily want to do it like on camera long term. Yeah, that's just inviting me to get hashtag canceled. And yeah, you know, like, we're just, at some point, we're not going to do it right. So you're playing a male character, and I think you should. Meepo is canonically 
male, because again, it's on the Citadels from the 2000s. And then when you created Scalabro, I was like, I don't want, like you initially created Scalabro as essentially like a, an undead servant. I created Scalabro as a joke. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I mean, like, like, when, it, when it got to the point where now the corpse has personality, right. I was just like, I'm not, I'm not going to make it where like, you know, the, the abomination you're commanding is the only woman in the party, right? Yeah, like, fair enough. <laughs> so anyway, those are just, I don't have like a solution there. Those are just like things that I've been thinking of and yeah. things that I think it's important to at least consider and consider solutions when, especially when you're playing uh, pre-written adventures. And actually, especially, especially when you're writing pre-written adventures. And especially, especially, especially when you're performing <laughs> for an audience. Uh, we are about to run long on time, not unlike every single episode of this arc. So mm -hmm. why don't we start to wrap this up? Would you play this adventure again? I think you've seen the written adventure. So why don't you, would you, would you play or run the written adventure as written again? I, um, I know. Um, and I don't think it's a bad adventure. I actually um, asked Snark Knight on our Discord, who has played through the written adventure, um, if like I was sort of getting the right end of it. And he he sort of confirmed that like, yeah, you know, you find out it's mean locks, you go find the mean locks, and you kill the mean locks. You know, it, it is pretty straightforward. Um, I think I would probably want more out of it I, th I think i would not be able to resist doing what i did this time which was taking the adventure and then embellishing the hell out of it right um yeah so if you if you handed it to me and said do this then that's what you would get yeah i mean i i enjoyed this type of adventure um i enjoyed much of our actual adventure i don't know how much the source material really contributed to that like in a lot of ways i feel like my enjoyment overcame the source material uh, and again, I think it just comes down to like the mean lock as a stat block is such like grinds your agency to a halt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is my concern with it, right? Of just the threat of imminent death and everything you do, right? Like this isn't a, this isn't a four to six fights a day type of monster, right? It's a one right. fight a day, one time. And you hope you come out the other side of it. Like I, that, that's just, I don't know. I, that just doesn't work for me. So I probably would not play the published adventure. I probably wouldn't recommend it, but uh, I would play this type of investigation kind of uh, again, for sure. And then, you know, this was sort of us dabbling outside the typical like swashbuckly Eberron pulp noir type of game. In further adventures of Tez and Friends, are there any like other genres you'd be interested in? I, You think this is outside of the like... Eberron Fatina. I think I thought this was like a perfectly the, I thought really? this was like a perfectly Eberron game. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, no, it feels like um this is like the second or third Eberron game you need to play. The first one is like, you know, dangling off a, an airship. Mm -hmm. Everybody dangles off an airship for the right. first time. Yeah. I mean, put an airship. <laughs> you dangle off it. It's, it's just it's I mean, on the it's on the cover. I mean people know that. Yeah. <laughs> there. You got dinosaurs? Yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah no i i mean i feel like this is a this is one of those things where it's like you know the core of eberron is that it's a world that has just gotten out of a of a hundred year long war like anything that's like 
reconciling the past and, and reconciling like you know the reality of of what the world is like now and and how not every score and not every question not every score got settled not every answer not every score got settled and not every question got answered like that to me feels like the core of eberron so like and again like i feel like this is one of those like kind of pulpy investigations you know of like <laughs> sometimes you just kind of like you got to go run into stuff and get beat up to find out the information you need. And that's very much what it felt like to me. So I, I felt like it was a very Eberron game. All right. Well then there you have it. Um, I think there will be, well, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, Shane, I think there will be further adventures of Tez and friends. I, yeah, well, uh, uh, so there's been some fan art in the discord. There've been requests for t-shirts. There's been a nomination of naming the group, the head knockers, uh, and making a jersey. So, I mean, I feel like we got to keep going, right? <laughs> I mean, let's see what Lucas gets up to in Sharn. Yeah, Lucas and Sharn or Tez at some point has to return home, right? There's still the ah, question of what's mm-hmm. going on. Uh, he, we've never answered the question of why was his tuition late? Uh, and why did it never arrive? And what's going on? With his uh, with the proud gales back in uh, in the Lazar principalities, so uh, they're all dead. I mean, yeah, but then I got to investigate who did it and go knock some heads together to get my revenge. You know, Tez is good for it. Are they undead? Also, I gotta I gotta prove my son of a son of a sailor background trait. <laughs> mm-hmm. You gotta earn it. Uh huh. All right, so it sounds like we got some options. We got some plans. Are, are you willing to run again? That's the real question. Are you willing to put up with Shane as a player with the, fu- <laughs> the full uh, the full weight of a performance? <laughs> I mean, look, it's, sometimes it's hard to get you from point A to point B, so a thing happens and we can stop recording. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. I I think the more time I spend with these characters, the more ideas I have for them. So I'm into it. All right. Sorry, the one ring. <laughs> you almost made it. Um, all right, let's uh, let's get out of here. Let's talk about how all of our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. And before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all of our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And while you're there, you can check out the plot hook of the week, which we are off to record right now. What do we have planned for next week's episode? Well, we talked about it a bit today, but we will be talking at length about plot armor. And in the character creation forge, we're building the king under the mountain. Well, that's it for episode 307 of Total Party Thrill. I hope it lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>